0: Oh, Father, we thank you for the Son. We thank you for your mercy and for opening, uh, opening our eyes to the truth of his sacrifice and the benefit to the church, for his wounds indeed have paid our ransom. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. I'm going to ask you to open your Bibles once again this morning to Romans chapter 6. I was about ready to dispense with this chapter until the last two verses of the chapter hit me very hard, and I thought, two more weeks, one week on verse 22 and one on verse 23. But for context, we'll go back once again to verse 15, where the apostle begins with these words, what then, he says. What then? He asks, "Shall we sin, because we are not under the law, but under grace?" Certainly not. Do you not know that to whom you present yourselves slaves to obey, you are that one slave whom you o- excuse me, whom you obey, whether of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness? But God be thanked that though you were slaves of sin, yet you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were delivered. And having been set free from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. I speak in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh, for just as you presented your members as slaves of uncleanness and of lawlessness leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves of righteousness to holiness." For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. What fruit did you have then in the things of which you're now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now, having been set free from sin and having become slaves of God, you have your fruit to holiness and the end, everlasting life. For the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. O oh, Father, we thank you this morning that by faith we shall not receive the wages of sin, but the gift of God. Amen. And so the apostle has taken us through this, this treatise, if you will, on salvation, on justification, and he's moving into a a section of the Christian life that we must all take strict heed to because we have to take part in it, and it's called sanctification, or what Paul refers to here as fruit to holiness. There has to be some fruit. You know, when God saved us, he could have taken us right home then. It might have been easier, (laughs) but he left us here. He left us here for a reason. It was to witness to the world. There's a number of ways in which we witness. One of those ways is through speech, and one is through our actions and our activities and our devotions and the things that we reveal are important to us. We worship God, and we gather together to do it according to his command. And so he writes, this verse 22, But now having been set free from sin, and having become slaves of God. So you see, we're always slaves of something and someone. Having become slaves of God, you have your fruit to holiness, and the end, everlasting life. So this verse really acts as a summary of all that's been written thus far in chapter 6, consider one of the previous verses which says, for when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. In other words, you didn't know the word of God, so in a sense, you were free from it. You didn't know the, uh, the laws of God, the restrictions, the moral restrictions he placed upon us. So in a sense, you were free. In a sense, your conscience was free. This statement refers to the, the imaginary freedom of the unsaved. No, the unsaved man goes around, he imagines that he's free. He imagines that we're the ones that are bound up with all the thou shalt nots of life. The unsaved man can sin with impunity, or so he thinks. Calvin wrote this. He said, Paul calls those free from righteousness who are held by no bridle to obey righteousness. This is the liberty of the flesh, which so frees us from obedience to God that it makes us slaves to the devil. That is the case. Friends, when you share the gospel with someone, eventually in that conversation or conversations that happen over time, it will be asked of you, So you're saying, I'm under the sway of the devil. First of all, they don't believe there is one, so that's a hurdle in itself. But I'm under the sway of demonic influences is what you're saying. Essentially, that's true. You're either a slave to the devil, not knowingly, or you're a slave to God knowingly one or the other eventually in those conversations that will come out and they'll ask you and they'll pin you down and you'll have to say yes you're either slave to sin and death or you're a slave to Christ and to eternal life and to holiness so the unbeliever's native ignorance of the law becomes his excuse to act as he pleases he imagines that he has no master and his master likes it that way the devil doesn't need to be exposed to do his work he does it just as well by stealth behind the scenes he just as soon you not know he's there he's free to act as he will without any pangs of conscience the unbeliever but what is the nature of his freedom the nature of his freedom makes him as free as any barnyard animal that snorts about the corral or grunts about the pen acting out with any willing partner that will have him. And just so that you don't think my reference too crude, consider a word from Jesus in this regard. He said, do not give what's holy to the dogs. Do not cast your pearls before swine lest they trample them under their feet and turn and tear you in pieces. Now I hope we know that the Lord's not talking about dogs and pigs. The Lord's talking about unbelievers. People who regard God very lowly in their concerns. He's concerned with people, and so he compares the impenitent of this world to the baser sort of beings that Jews of Jesus' day would have nothing to do with. Jews don't like pigs, and I know you all love your little dogs, but Jesus didn't love them. Jews had no use for those. There's a whole set of doctrines concerning our liberty in Christ. That blessed blessed liberty that we've been gifted with, by which we may please the Lord... But know this, the liberty we enjoy as the children of God does include the liberty to sin. You know, this is something I want to prep us for for when we get to chapter 8, because the Lord does the choosing. The Lord does the electing. And so I want you to know the nature of your free will, because we talk so much in the church today of free will. Friends, the, the unbeliever has free will. He has the free will to do wrong. He has the free will to do right. But what he lacks is the power to do right. He lacks the ability. He has opportunity, but no ability. Now, the saved man is different. The saved man has the ability to do wrong, the ability to do right always that opportunity is there but in Christ we have the ability to do right we have the power to choose him the unbeliever has no such power so know this the liberty we enjoy as the children of god does include the liberty to sin friends that's why paul's telling us reckon yourselves slave to righteousness because he knows if you don't know you're a sl- slave to righteousness, if you don't know you're justified before God and have this new ability, this new power to choose righteously, you might continue to choose wrongly out of habit. So he wants you to know. So he's moving us all to act rightly. We're dealing this morning with the subject of good works. And where do they play in this whole scheme of life as as God's people? So the child of God has liberty To sin, but what he does not have is a license to sin. Let us not be those who mistake liberty for license. Peter delineated this when he wrote, This is the will of God, that by doing good you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men, as free, yet not using your liberty as a cloak for vice, but as bondservants of God. A bondservant is essentially a slave. Do not use your liberty as a cloak for vice. You're free to sin, but you have no warrant for it. God still forbids it, you see. In other words, our liberties are not to be abused, friends. We have been set free. We've been granted the liberty not to please ourselves any longer. You know, we live in a culture where pleasing ourselves has become a sort of rite of passage. We have the liberty now not to please ourselves, but to please God who paid for our blessed freedoms. And so the apostle can rightly ask, what fruit did you have then in the things which you are now ashamed, for the end of those things is death? Did you notice that he asks this rhetorical question, but he doesn't answer it? He assumes we know the answer. We have no fruit, master apostle. We have no fruit from our former lives. He assumes we're intelligent enough to have followed the argument this far and come to the obvious only conclusion, and that is that there is no fruit from our former lives. There's nothing from our sinful pasts that a believer would offer on the altar of the one true God. There's nothing you can bring as an offering to God that you have in your former life. There's nothing but the shame of our past lives that we bring, a repentant attitude, friends. Shame is the fruit of unrighteousness. And so the verse that we have before us states again our blessed slavery. Why do I call it a blessed slavery? Um, The apostle called himself the prisoner of Christ, the bondservant of God. It's a blessed thing. True liberty, friends, is slavery to God. That's the whole image here. And Jesus is going to enter into that. If this does not seem appealing to you, consider that it's the only condition that comes with God's blessing. He's either your master and you're his servant, or you have another master whom you serve. This is the only servitude that brings eternal joy. This is the only allegiance that ends with eternal life. It's the only relationship that yields this fruit to holiness that the apostle says we must show. And what is this fruit to holiness? It's called elsewhere in scripture sanctification. Now if you look in the lexicon for the Greek word for holiness, you'll find that it's the same word for sanctification. They're the same thing. All right? And the word is hagiasmos. Hagios is saint. He's the one who's set apart. Hagiasmos is sanctification, the works of the one who is set apart. And so there are a number of definitions. The first is separation unto God. I speak about that all the time. Right? That's what election's all about. You're still not righteous you're still the same person you were when God found you but he's taken you out of this camp and put you in this camp he's sanctified you he's separated you for his own use and so separation to God is the is the first definition of the word hagiasmos there are a number of scriptural references to demonstrate Um, this definition. From 2 Thessalonians 2.13, we read, But we're bound to give thanks to God always for you, brethren, beloved of the Lord, because God, from the beginning, chose you for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. A second definition is like it. It's the course of life befitting those separated. So... We like to say, we like to generally break this down. When God chose you, you were sanctified. In that moment, positionally sanctified, taken from this position and put in this position. God declared you sanctified, and so you are, even though you haven't done anything good yet. And then there's a progressive sort of sanctification, which the apostle is urging in us now. It's something we cultivate in ourself in partnership to God, or with God, I should say. And and the lexicon refers to this verse uh, for this definition. A second verse, it refers to is first Thessalonians where Paul writes this. This is the will of God, your sanctification, that you should abstain from sexual immorality. Right away, he brings up sexual immorality. Sexual immorality or the guidelines for sexual morality do not change with the changing fashions of society. They are the same. It's the will of God that you should abstain from sexual immorality. That each of you should know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor. So there's knowledge that you need. You have to know how to possess your own vessel. Not in passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, Paul writes. For God did not call us to uncleanness. But in holiness. Therefore, he who rejects this does not reject man, but God, who's also given us his Holy Spirit. When we choose to sin, we're not rejecting man, we're rejecting God, who's given us his Holy Spirit. The passage tells us that we should know how to possess our own vessel in sanctification. And honor. It is this knowing how that's the business of preachers and of preaching and of the teachers in the church. It's the business of a series on Romans to teach us how to possess our own vessels in sanctification. When we come into the faith, we're not apprised of the many things that offend God and of the many things that please Him. We don't know immediately all these things. Thankfully, He gave us the church. He gave us the gifts of the Spirit. He gave us the fellowship of the brethren, to lead us along, to be examples to us, to teach us, to hold us accountable. And so we must begin to know how to live the Christian life. We must possess ourselves in sanctification that is separated for a holy use. When you were zapped with salvation, when God justified you moving you from this camp to the next, you were still as ignorant about how to live the Christian life as you were a moment before. Um, I had to read the whole of the Bible to have it in my mind. It didn't just come with the new birth, and neither did yours. No, it takes, that is part of the process of our walk with Christ in the world to become progressively sanctified before him. We must possess ourselves in sanctification. That is separated for a holy use. We must learn that it is in contrast to our former lives lived in passion of lust, like those who do not know God, he said. Friends, it's really very simple. There has to be a difference between us and them. We may not live as those who do not know God. We now know him. He's made himself known to us. We sense the change, but even the greatness... And the power and the completeness of the change is a thing that we must learn continually. We must reckon ourselves slaves to God. And so Paul in this chapter is telling us that we're no longer slaves to our old desires, to our old master, and to our old selves. We have a new master, and he desires the best for his servants. And so we have the thrust of the apostles' entire argument here. He says, what fruit did you have then? When you were headed for death and for hell. And then Paul gives us one of his famous but now statements. You were dead then, but now you live. You were sinful then, but now you are righteous. You lived in enmity with God then, but now you live to accomplish his will. There's only that but now moment of your life. You were that, but now you're not any longer. Martin Lloyd-Jones Stresses this. I included in the notes uh, a lengthy quotation from the great preacher who said, a man who can lecture on this does not really appreciate what it means. If you know anything about this, you're bound to preach. I want to tell you, that is my dilemma on Sunday mornings. It would be very simple to get up here and just lecture. And I've even heard some in the Reformed circle say, Sunday morning should be like a seminary class class. I thoroughly reject that characterization. Preaching is not the same as teaching. Preaching is earnestly pleading for your righteousness. Teaching is just telling you what it is. And so Lloyd-Jones points that out. You know, when you read the commentaries of Martin Lloyd-Jones on the book of Romans, they're not a series of lectures. They're a series of sermons that he gave on Friday nights at... uh, at the uh, Westminster Hall in, in London for, I think, 13 years. It went on quite a while. But he says if you know anything about this you're bound to preach it. A man who can say but now, coldly and merely regard them as two words he goes on, just a part of the construction of a sentence, a part of the syntax, has never seen their real meaning. Friends, a miraculous change has taken place. You were justified before God. A moment before that, you were in sin before God. You were under the wrath of God. That's what the Chapter 1 is about. And so Lloyd-Jones says, the Christian cannot look at these words without being moved to the depth of his being. He worships. He praises God. He must shout, but now. This is in many ways the best test of our profession of the Christian faith, he says. And then he says, if these words do not thrill us and move us, then I think we had better reexamine our whole position. And so let's put the verse... the. uh, put the two verses together again. What fruit did you have in the things of which you're now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now, having been freed from sin and having become slaves of God, you have fruit to holiness and the end, everlasting life. Friends, at some point in your life, the gospel preach has to move you in your soul. There has to be a moving moment where God shed light upon your mind so that you could, as we sang in the song, as we sang in the Wesley song this morning, and can it be, my chains fell off, the light burst into the dungeon, right? There has to be a moment in your life when you recognize you were on the wrong path and have been switched to the right one. And you're glorying in it. Having been set free from sin and having become slaves of God, you have fruit to holiness and the end, everlasting life. And the prospect of everlasting life ought to thrill the believer and the hearer of the gospel. It's like I said, when you're sharing the gospel with an unbeliever who's scoffing and is, and is, um, and is very unreceptive to it, you can always stop him and say, I understand the way you are in your mind. I was there. But wouldn't it be great? if what I'm saying is true. Wouldn't it be great if what I'm saying is true to the man dying on his cot? Wouldn't it be great if you could receive Christ and be with him in an instant? The instant your eyes close, your mind's eye open, and the first thing they see is the blessed Savior. Wouldn't it be a great thing? And so I've often told you what Peter is going to preach about at Pentecost, I've often told you that you was sa- when you were saved, you were saved out of something, and you were saved into something. You were saved out of this world system and into the kingdom of God. You've come out of the world, and you've come into the church. And we don't speak about the building in this sense. We speak about being incorporated into what Paul calls the body of Christ. We are the body parts, and he's the head. Peter preached this very thing in the streets of Jerusalem at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2 when the Holy Spirit came upon them in boldness of speech and tongues of fire. And so he preached and he said, Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, Lord in Christ. He accused them of killing Christ right there on the streets, boldly. And he said, The one you crucified is the Christ. And he went on. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, men and brethren, what shall we do? Isn't that the thing that you should ask? When the gospel's been presented, when your sin has been presented before you, when the hopelessness of your situation and your end of eternal death in hell is presented to you, and there's a way out, Why wouldn't you ask, what shall we do? And so that's what they asked the apostles. And Peter said to them, repent, which means stop doing what you're doing. Repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. In other words, God will enter into your soul with you, and you'll know he is there. And he goes on, For the promise, friends, the gospel promise of eternal life is to you and to your children and to all who are afar off, as many as the Lord our God will call. And with many other words, he testified and exhorted them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. You're being saved out of something. a Perverse generation. And friends, I don't know that there's any perverser generation than the ones that we're currently living in. Those who gladly received his words were baptized, Luke wrote, and that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. Now that's revival. (laughs) You preach the word. And 3,000 souls repent and get baptized. These, like you, friends, exchanged one master for the other. They exchanged one owner for the other. One Lord for another. One fellowship of people for another. One heart for another. One life for another. You've been set free by what? A form of doctrine, he said. I labored over this last week. It's the doctrine. It's another way of saying truth. And I hope you're not dismayed by this reference to doctrine it is our doctrine that defines our religion now i have to i have to deal with this word religion that evangelicals have tried to make a bad word let's not do that with it it's a perfectly good descriptive word let's just clean it up and use it rightly again we love to decry religion in the church today as though it's below relationship and i quite understand that i do For me, though, I'd rather reclaim the word and jettison, rather reclaim it than jettison it from our vocabulary, relegating it to those who turn empty religion or empty ritual into religion. Friends, we have a glorious faith, and our faith spawned a glorious religion. Ours is not an empty set of arbitrary practices. We're not enamored with superstition or spurious claims of divine intervention, I was watching something yesterday about how the um, I was watching something on cable with Karen uh, flicking by, and there it was—the Virgin Mary saved the Dominican Republic in the early 1900s from uh, American invasion. And I thought, these poor people—they really believe this. But she was also cited in all these other places and all these other shrines, and you get all sorts of points with God by traveling, doing pilgrimage to those shrines and. Kissing stones and all sorts of things. Friends, that's what I think some mean by religion. But that's one religion. That's false religion, friends. We're not enamored with superstitious or spurious claims of divine intervention. We need not visit shrines or kiss idols or make pilgrimages to holy sites. We ought to make a pilgrimage to church on Sunday morning. But not to holy sites. Worshiping God according to the fourth commandment is part of our religion. (laughs) We do need to follow a set of moral guidelines and principles. Not principles of our own making, but those handed down by our sovereign deity. Those who decry religion and uphold relationship are the same voices today that would decry what Paul calls this form of doctrine. You see, they want to set themselves free from anything that appears religious. Doctrine appears religious. He's not speaking of some arbitrary set of beliefs. He's speaking of the commandments of God. Jesus delineated this very thing when he talked about the difference between man-made religion And the requirements of the Savior. And to the legalists of his day, to the Jewish legalists of his day, the scribes and Pharisees, Jesus said, thus you have made the commandment of God of no effect by your tradition. He could have said religion there. He said by your tradition. Then he called them hypocrites. Well did Isaiah prophesy of you, saying, These people draw near to me with their mouth, they honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me, and in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Friends, there's only one remedy for false doctrine, and that's true doctrine. Form of doctrine. Set us free. Religion is a good thing if it contains the commands and practices given us by God. God. And some of these anti-religionists in the church, I fear, are trying to remove any requirement as though all restrictions are artificial and unnecessary. Paul makes a clear distinction of purpose and prerogative when he wrote to the Galatians saying this, I make known to you, brethren, that the gospel which was preached to me is not according to man. I neither received it from man, nor was I taught it, but it came through the revelation of Jesus Christ. False religion comes from men. They worship me vainly. True religion comes from God. The form of doctrine that Paul teaches and preaches is the antidote to false religion. If we're to make distinctions between religion and relationship, let them be biblical distinctions. The New Testament Stresses the differences, differences between true, true religion and false. But the church has become too fond of our own feelings, our own experiences, our own fantasies informing us about the nature of divine things and how we should process them. People say things to me all the time. They tell me what God's doing for them right now. They tell me what God's doing in the, their lives and how God's leading them here and God's leading them there. I hear these things a lot. They tell me about experiences that they're having in their new relationship with them. And all too often, the experiences and the voices that they express are different than the doctrines of God that are written in His Word. We had a young lady in the church many years ago, a beloved young lady. She was a believer. She came in with some of our high school kids from one of the local high schools, and they had witnessed to her, and she became a Christian. She became a very strong Christian. And uh, she's still a good friend to this day. She's been gone from this area for many years. She had no parents. Uh, She lived with a family from the church, not this church, another church. And um, she lived with them. And as she came of age, she, of course, like a lot of young women who um, have sort of been abandoned by parents and the love of family and affections, is seeking affection. And she got enamored with this young man who uh, claimed to be a Christian. I never met the man. It didn't matter um, that I met him or not. Um, What mattered was she told me, well, she's decided, and this was kind of on the spur of the moment, I've decided that I should go with him. He's asked me to go with him out of state to his mother's house, and we're going to go there for a couple of weeks, and then he's going off to Iraq to fight in the war. This was all very sudden. Some of you may remember this. And I said to her, you've just met this man. This sounds like a a very bad life plan. Is anybody with me so far? Or am I out of line? Because I was told I was out of line. Now, I've always given counsel to people, to young people, on this basis, I will only give you the same counsel I would give my own children. That way I know it's the best and most loving I can give. I think this is a fool's errand. Do not do this thing. She had other people come in from the church and say, he has no right to tell you that. You have to do what God's telling you to do. You see how poisonous that can be? To be, to be extracted from wise counsel in the body of Christ... And to believe that the voices in your head are the only ones that matter and that they come from God. And that when someone gives you wise and loving counsel, that somehow that voice is against God's counsel. Do you see how destructive that kind of thing can be? Do you want to know the end of the story? Well, she yelled at me first and said, well, they told me that you have no right to tell me that. And I said, I am your pastor. I have no right to not tell you that. She took my advice. A few years later, she married a young man in the church. We've known all our lives. Good man. They have children. They're a good Christian family. And that whole crazy plan went out the window. And the voices with it that were telling her that her feelings were God speaking to her. That is very seldom the case. Now, when you talk about the maturing Christian, there's a section in the book of Hebrews, chapters 5 and 6, where it talks about eventually we're mature enough that our senses help us determine good and evil, but that doesn't happen at the beginning. You bring your feelings in line with God's word. You don't bring God's word in line with your feelings and jettison every voice that tells you your feelings are good. So that's where I make a distinction between what people call relationship and real relationship and religion and real religion. What's written, friends, what's written is what God's revealing to you. You're not being entreated to some special personal revelation. Friends, if you were, if you were like Abraham, and when God speaks to you, it was like when he spoke to Abraham then you should write that down and add it to your canon of Scripture. But I think we know that's not the same as being Spirit-led. Rather, what God's revealing to you is the teaching of Christ... The doctrine of Christ. And those two words are synonymous. Teaching and doctrine. It's the word that leads you out of bondage. It's the doctrine that breaks your chains. It's the truth that sets us free. The Lord Jesus said this very thing. He said to those Jews who believed in him, if you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed. He didn't say if you listen to your heart, you're my disciples indeed. If you reject all wise counsel, And listen to your heart, you're my disciples indeed. He didn't say that. He said, if you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth, and it's the truth that will set you free. Your feelings have no such power, friends. They are from the old master. They're the ones that need training, not the written word. And then Jesus taught the naysayers, that very thing that Paul teaches here. He said, most assuredly, I say to you, whoever commits sin is a slave of sin. And a slave does not abide in the house forever, but a son abides forever. Therefore, if the son makes you free, you shall be free indeed. I think it's high time we define just exactly what a Christian is, friends. Is a Christian a person who's a big bundle of hopes and dreams? Watching celebrity singers, you'd think that's what a Christian is. Oh, God made all my dreams come true. Now I'm going to the after party with all the men. <laughs> is a Christian just a big bundle of hopes and dreams? Friends, I want to tell you something, because I, I, I got a parenthesis in the notes here. I'll take a planner over a dreamer any day, because the dreamer is asleep, and the planner has woken up, Okay? I will bless a plan way before I'll bless a dream. I've spoken at a couple of graduations, and I did not tell people you can do whatever you want to do, because first of all, it's not true, and I don't lie to children. And secondly, and secondly, greatness is not the same as goodness. Encourage young people to be good, not great. Greatness will take care of itself. The dreamer dreams that, what do they say? Dream big dreams because you have a big God. You hear these things and they sort of suck you in to their non-wisdom. Friends, when Jesus said, Woe is unto the man that gains the whole world and loseth his own soul... You know, if you've heard me over the years, I believe he was talking about Alexander the Great when he said that. He was the only man up until that time who had literally gained the whole world and literally lost his own soul. And I've often told you, I've read quite a bit about Alexander the Great, and he was great. And he was the first one to be called the Great. But he was not good. Alexander the Great could never have been called Alexander the Good, but he fulfilled all his dreams. <laughs> you see what I'm saying? We're talking about fruit to holiness, not fruit to fame, not fruit that puffs us up. Is the Christian the one who suddenly divinely inspired that every desire of his heart is approved by God? Is a Christian... One who can do all things he's always loved to do, but do them now with a clear conscience? If so, where's the change of which the apostle speaks? He said, you used to do those things, you should be ashamed of them, but now you do these things. I hear celebrities always trying to drag God into their life decisions, even when they've publicly done some of the most egregious things. So what is a Christian? In the first place, friends, a Christian is a person who has had something done to him. Go back the weeks before. Justification was done to you. You couldn't cause it. In fact, trying to cause it would pollute it. He's been singled out by God for intervention. This is what the epistle to the Romans has stressed thus far in the... Um, in the letter the the person of faith is a person who has been delivered by a deliverer he did not deliver himself and he knows it and he knows it because he knows he could not deliver himself his deliverance from bondage to sin and death were thrust upon him remember Paul wrote much more than having now been justified by his blood we shall be saved from wrath through him We were justified by another. Our justification was done to us. Our deliverance from wrath was thrust upon us. And so we read, but God demonstrates his own love toward us in this. While we were still sinners, while we were still unable, while we were still blind to his truth, he saved us. So that's the first point of being a Christian. While we were still dead in trespasses and sin, Christ died for us. While we were busy sinning, Christ was busy bleeding on our behalf. We're just like the taunters at the cross who said he saved others, let him save himself. And what did Jesus say? As they taunted him in their ignorance, he said, Father, forgive them. They're just ignorant sinners. They know not what they do. That's all of us. And he saved us anyway. That's number one. That's the first thing that makes a Christian. Something's done to you by God that you couldn't do for yourself. Number two. The second thing is the overwhelming completeness of the change. That's what we're talking about in sanctification. You've been taken out of this camp, put in this one. You've abandoned this master for this one. You listen to this voice now, not those old voices, right? It's a complete change. So reckon yourselves a slave to God. You were enslaved here, now you're enslaved here. And that doesn't mean, friends, that you've been reimagined. That's the new word. We reimagine everything, right? Today, yeah, there's a car alarm going off. There's one thing you know for certain when a car alarm's going off. There's no car being stolen. They're the the, the stupidest things ever invented because as soon as you hear one, you just know it's obnoxious. Someone bumped into the car and no one even goes, let's get out there, get the criminal. (laughs) Um, So I guess that's the end. I don't know, where was I? (laughs) The car alarm. Um, Friends, while we were still dead in trespasses and sin, Christ died for us. But what's amazing in our transformation is the completeness of the change. You're dead to sin. And that doesn't mean you've been reimagined. It means you've been recreated. Right? It means you've been recreated. There's a lot of words today that I can't use. I I can't use. It's like reimagined is one of those. You'll never hear me say reimagined except in a context like this. You know, I've realized something. I'm the only person left in the entire world that has problems. Really, I I have problems, and all of you have challenges. (laughs) Do you remember when problems got changed to challenges? Like that cleaned them up? (laughs) I mean, I I struggle with these kinds of changes. I don't have challenges, I have problems, but I have a problem solving deity. I'm not reimagining my problems to be challenges. I had a client one time who, after we got very well into the plan and the, and the, and the uh, building was being built, he said, I'm gonna make a lot of changes. And I went, Oh my word, those are real serious structural changes. He said, Consider it a challenge. And I said, Bill, I hate a challenge. I like life easy. Friends, the change is complete. You are a new creature. That does not mean you've been reimagined. It means you've been recreated. It's a person who's been set free from himself and his old desires that have led him to this point in his life. Friends, quit trying to meet your old goals. Get new goals. Get godly goals. Calvin comments on our former condition this way. He said, For Paul intimates that we are possessed with extreme blind love of ourselves. When we were involved in the darkness of sins and think not that there is so much filth in us, the light of the Lord alone can open our eyes to behold the filthiness which lies in our flesh. And so Paul writes elsewhere, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things passed away, behold, all things become new. All things are of God, who is... All things, the completeness of the change. God has reconciled us to himself through Jesus Christ, for he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And then finally, he gives us something to contribute. You know, what did they say on the streets of Jerusalem at Pentecost? They said, what shall we do? Well, friends, first of all, we read the Word of God. We learn it. We take counsel. We come to the place of understanding of what our new nature is. That's what he meant by reckoning yourselves dead to sin. Understand that you really are dead to it. It's not your master. You're not addicted to your old addictions. They have no more power over you. Except the habit part. It has no power to seize you. And when we see it clearly as it's taught in scripture. We may come to recognize the fullness of the change. We may reckon ourselves indeed dead to sin. And alive to God. Calvin comments on the nature of the, of the change. He said these things Unless we're beyond measure stupid, ought to generate in our minds a hatred and horror of sin and also a love and desire for righteousness. By the way, um, when they said stupid in those days, they meant unconscious, like stupor. Okay, just just so we know. If the change has been accomplished by God, it will be evidenced by the things we now love and the things we now hate. Friends, we should hate different things than we used to hate. <laughs> we should love different things than we used to love. That's sanctification or fruit to holiness. And then at the end of verse 22, he said, and we shall receive the end, everlasting life. Friends, we have to understand the relationship of works in the Christian life. Works do not save But they're the evidence of salvation. James made it very plain in this famous dictum. Do you not know, O foolish man, that faith without works is dead? If your faith isn't producing works, it's a dead faith, which is no faith at all. And so he offers this challenge. Now think about this. Show me your faith without your works, and I'll show you my faith by my works. Faith is invisible. It's like love. It's only known by works. And words are part of the works, right? All these invisible things are known by the actions that they prompt. Works don't save, but if you don't have any, you're not saved. The gospel is spoken, but the gospel is also lived. Jesus said, you are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand. And it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Good works are the visible part of your sanctification. Paul writes this to the Corinthians. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now listen very closely because when he says do not be deceived it's that's because we tend to be deceived in these areas. Do not be deceived neither fornicators nor idolaters nor adulterers nor homosexuals nor sodomites nor thieves nor covetous nor drunkards nor revilers nor extortioners will inherit The kingdom of God. That's quite a list. And then he said this. But now. (laughs) Such were some of you. But you were washed. But you were sanctified. But you were justified. In the name of the Lord Jesus. And by the spirit of our God. Amen. Father we ask that you continue the task in us of our glorious sanctification, which is our walk with Christ in this world. May the Holy Spirit accomplish this task in the church. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.